I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph from The Telegraph. Once again, yeah, we are at the home of The Telegraph in uh, central London. And uh, yeah, we're also brought to you in association with Amazon Prime Video UK, the home of the US Open in the UK, which is now just seven days away. The US Open will be live and exclusive on Prime Video. I can't wait. It's going to be very... uh, Exciting indeed. Tennis without adverts. Tennis, uh, tennis without sleep in my case. But uh, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, I, with, we are at Telegraph Towers. I'm joined by Charlie Eccleshare. David can, continues to, I don't know what he's doing. He's barely even on WhatsApp. He seems to have, you know, checked out. He assures me that uh, he's keeping track of tennis scores. But I don't know. When he reappears in New York, he may not have a clue what's happened in the world of tennis in the last couple of weeks. And it's a fairly eventful couple of weeks for him to have missed. Uh, Big, exciting news, Charlie. We're going to lead on today's podcast with admin-based tennis news because it's been a big week for tennis admin. (laughs) The Davis Cup reforms have been passed. The uh, ITF's proposal for a revamped Davis Cup, uh, those proposals were approved at their annual general meeting in Orlando last Thursday. Um, It was... A surprise to many people, they needed a two-thirds majority in order to pass the reforms, resolution, yeah, reforms. Uh, They achieved 71.43%, which I think as much as that sounds only just over the line, I think a lot of people expected it to be closer than that. Notable nations in terms of how they voted, the Americas and Africa uh, all unanimous in their support of the changes. Australia incredibly opposed. Um, France, Spain, Belgium, Italy, Portugal, uh, Austria, all back to the reforms. Germany, though, notable um, in Europe and the UK as well, um, were opposed. There was there were some rumours um, that despite the LTA claiming that they'd made a decision the day before that they were going to oppose the reforms, that actually their representative um, at the vote uh, might have uh, 
performed a U-turn, a secret U-turn and voted the other way. But those uh, claims have been completely refuted. A statement from uh, the representative David Rawlinson said the LTA board agreed to vote to oppose the Davis Cup reforms at the ITF's AGM. I can give absolute assurance that I voted in accordance with our decisions. But the fact of those rumours circulating did highlight the fact um, that the vote was in private. That I mean, I, I think aside from anything else, that is uh, one of the major issues that a lot of people have um, with this process. I've given you a lot of meat to tuck into <laughs> there, Charlie. Where do you want to start? Yeah, well, I think the the secret ballot is a, is a good place to start. It certainly adds to the slight cloak and dagger feel of the whole thing. With Britain as well, I think obviously an interesting talking point, even the suggestion that there was this late flip-flop or that maybe there was deception at work. Obviously, it's been refuted. But even the fact as well that you had the All England Club coming out in favour of the changes and the LTA against. I mean, firstly, the All England Club didn't have a vote, so it was essentially pointless. They didn't need to reveal that. And all it did was show that even between voting nations, there was discord, which has added to this whole sense of acrimony and conflict um, and you know the outpouring of emotion of sadness um, that we've seen from certain quarters yeah and there has been no shortage of outpouring of emotion I mean really I feel like I'm the only person in the world that doesn't have a particularly strong feeling about this you're you're nodding at me yeah. but I'll, I'll read out some uh, some of the uh, responses from from various players I mean plenty had been outspoken for or against in advance of the vote but afterwards you know Yannick Noah was the sort of the most poetic in his uh, not least because he wrote it in French, uh, but uh, he said, you know, RIP the Davis Cup, basically it sold its soul. And uh, those views were reflected by by many a player, Leighton Hewitt, incredibly strong on it. Nicola Mahou, Luca Puy said he wouldn't play in the new Davis Cup format, uh, format Thomas Burdick. Um, but a very telling statement, interestingly, from 18-year-old uh, Canadian Felix Auger-Eliassim, uh, probably worthy of note. He said, one of my biggest dreams as a kid was to one day play a Davis Cup final in front of my home crowd. Sadly, I'll never have the chance to experience Davis Cup like I grew up watching it. I still hope tradition and history would win over money, but I guess that's where we are now. It's worth pointing out that, although he's correct there, and he says that the dream of playing a Davis Cup final in front of his home crowd is is gone the, there there's a I think a little bit of misunderstanding that the whole home and away aspect is going to be lost because that is not the case it's just at the finals that, that that's going to be the case and just finally Borna Chorich um gave a very measured response, possibly reflecting a bit more how you and I feel, Charlie. Uh, he said, one could argue that the change is too radical, but tennis was often criticised for the lack of innovation. Well, this was certainly a bold move. Only time will show if this was a good or bad decision, but it is up to us to give it a chance uh, to give it a chance to be the start of something awesome. Who knows? Maybe in a few years, Davis Cup week will be the best tennis week of the year. Now, yeah, to summarise my feelings, it, Davis Cup needed reform. Absolutely, unquestionably. I'm not sure these are the perfect reforms. It's not necessarily how I'd have done it, but there's some good stuff in there. I sort of feel like let's 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 see. Let's all give it a go and see. And if it is rubbish, then hey, there's plenty of other people proposing plenty of other options. But I, yeah, the the strength of feeling has really blown me away. Yeah, I I have to say I think there has. I mean, initially I was. Um 
I could see both sides of it. And I think in a slightly maybe contrarian way, I've been pushed towards being more pro the changes than I might have been just because I feel... Andy Murray, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just feels, a, it does feel like a slight overreaction. And it feels a little bit like the people who are most staunchly defending it, with the exception maybe of Alger Aliassim, I think that's an interesting viewpoint, are lamenting a Davis Cup that hasn't really existed for 20, 30 years. Yes, you know, in its halcyon 1970s period, it was this fantastic competition that why would you change? But to suggest that it's been like that for the last 10, 20 years is it's ludicrous, really. It has lost its relevance. It did need reform and a revamp. And, and I can see it's a slight sledgehammer to crack a nut situation, potentially. You know, could they have phased in a few changes rather than throwing everything out there? I, I do see that, but I... I also think it could be exciting. It's clearly a failing competition, and this could this could give it a fresh impetus. In principle, and this is something that Borna Chorich pretty much pointed out. In principle, the scale just the scale of the changes are exciting. The fact that change on this scale is possible in one fell swoop it, it feels like ten. I'm sure tennis isn't alone in this, but it feels like you know just introducing a shot clock on yeah. po- po- a portion of the tour it feels like that's been talked about for 15 years or so. You know, the how long has John McEnroe been talking about getting rid of uh, um, net Warm- cord, net yeah. co- warm-ups, yeah. getting rid of the net cord on on serve? You know, it's the wheels of change turns slow slowly so regardless of how you feel about the actual change i find something a bit reassuring about the fact that something big has happened well look i mean even a year ago at the last agm didn't the motion fail to change from five to three sets i mean and, we're t- and that's something you know that's a pretty minor change in the context of what we're seeing now and even that didn't so they thought we'll, we'll just we'll just <laughs> wrap that up in like yeah, 20 yeah. times bigger changes and we'll yeah we'll pass that we'll just, no one will even notice that exactly but i do think um to use a slightly annoying American phrase, the optics of, of it haven't been great. And I think what's offended your tennis purists, your Todd Woodbridges, etc. on Twitter is this idea that it's it, it, it feels like, um, you know, you've got this glamorous footballer who's at the heart of it and pictures of him, you know, having selfies with people from, you know, from certain nations or even David Haggerty himself, I think rubs people up the wrong way. I, I think that's added to this sense that, who are these people who don't really understand tennis and who gave them the right to be chucking away 100 years of history? $3 billion, I think, is the answer to that question, uh, Charlie. It's amazing what $3 billion can buy you. That's what I'm learning. Um, But also also just on that money point as well, I think there's been a slight um, rewriting of this idea that, oh, well, because money's involved, that must be bad. And, of course, that can be the case, corruption, etc. But giving a lot more money to smaller nations could be a very good thing. I don't know how all of those nations are going to use that money, but in theory, giving those nations a $25 million boost is is a good thing. You know, it's it's a slightly privileged position that maybe Great Britain and Australia have. Yes, we can afford, we've got huge revenue-generating grand slams. We don't necessarily need, you know, lots of money from the Davis Cup. We can enjoy its less tangible things like its prestige and, and all of that, but that doesn't really go a very long way if you're a smaller nation. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and yeah, it, it's the process, I think, which is is has given the most cause for concern for me. The fact that I had no idea the vote was going to be private. I, really, I, was, I, I couldn't believe that that's how... I mean, even if that's how they normally conduct things, surely they would would have thought hang on a second this isn't going to play well this being private let's let's adjust our rules here i don't see any if 
I hate the whole if you've if you've got nothing to hide then you've got nothing to fear but in in this case maybe you know that uh, that ought to have applied I mean yeah and it, it, it turns out there's this electoral college system mm. I, I had no idea there was an electoral college system uh, at the ITF turns out I wasn't as well brushed up on my tennis uh, admin <laughs> as I thought I was um, but that, yeah but I think that the whole thing from a commerce point of view has not been handled brilliantly there's been a lot of information a lot of questions who are these wildcard nations has that been adequately answered yet what about these two other competitions that David Haggerty's alluded to that haven't really been explained. Well, that was what I was just going to mention. Why is bit like Brexit really why did that only come up the day it's like the Irish border thing you know what why was that not mentioned when we were all debating this before the vote was done um yeah that suddenly the the vote was conducted it all passed and then these two sort of extra events uh, (laughs) suddenly slipped into the conversation a one in April a mixed event in April and a quote winner take all event in September and I just thought whoa so hang on a second so Davis Cup is actually only one third of the picture here. Still, no one's mentioning Fed Cup. Um, that that was the aspect of it actually that alarmed me the most. That that suddenly just appeared out of nowhere the day after the vote. Yeah, and there's still been discussion. You know, is is that November scheduled? Is that set in stone? Apparently, that could move. I mean, it, it sounds like all of it is is potentially changeable and potentially movable. And now th- you can see why they wouldn't necessarily have wanted to put that out there because. It might have seemed like they were watering down their proposals. But I just think a bit more clarity about this. And certainly on the Fed Cup point, you know, what are the next steps there? And we also have this very strange situation where if with the implications for the Davis Cup for 2018. Now, just in terms of who's going to win it, I'm going to find it really interesting. Will greater import and poignancy be placed on the whole thing? Will nations be vying to, you know, win what? you know somebody like Yannick No would describe as the last true Davis Cup you know you win this Davis Cup and sort of you're the holder forevermore or will everyone just go oh well this you know this isn't even a thing anymore why am I going to bother with this but you also have the weird quirk of some of the um, world group uh, playoff ties occurring in September notably for us the one involving Great Britain are now Almost entirely redundant, 98% redundant. They're essentially playing for a seeded place. And I think that applies to Australia as well. Ironically, the two biggest nations yeah. that, that voted to oppose the uh, the reforms. So, I mean, what in practice, what does that mean for that tie? Does it mean, for example, will the Telegraph not bother sending anyone to it? I mean, will it depend on whether Andy Murray plays? Like, really, what does that mean for that Davis Cup tie in September? Well, I think from our point of view, it, it will be the, as, as you touched upon, the last ever, well, I would say proper Davis Cup tie, but it's not really. Because, you know, it's it's of the old format, but it's essentially a dead, not even a dead rubber, five dead rubbers, a dead tie. Less than a dead rubber, yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, a long since deceased rubber. But I mean, it, that kind of speaks to this, the lack of what appears to be joined up thinking and... Again, with the, with the sledgehammer cracking a nut analogy, it does feel you think normally that when there are big reforms, it takes a while for them to be implemented. And fair play, you know, these are happening straight away. But it is like, wow, this is immediate. <laughs> this is next year. This I mean, is happening. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it'll be, they say the fourth week of the tennis season is when the playoffs yeah. will happen. So that's immediately after Australian Open. Yeah. So that will be the same slot as what we currently have for what, the, the first round of, of the world group ties. Um, so I guess there'll be some familiarity there. And I, and I do think actually that is something that, again, with the communication hasn't 
whether it's people willfully ignoring it or the ITF not doing enough, but there will still be home and away ties. That will still exist. It will just be that's only that first round. Um, and, and I, you know, that seems slightly weird as well that you have that in February or late Jan, whenever it is, and then you don't have the final to November. I mean, that's a pretty big gap. That must be for any sporting tournament anywhere. A it's a gap, gap that's going to be filled by a mixed event of in course, April yeah. and a winner-take-all <laughs> event in September, yeah. Charlie. <laughs> the winner-take-all is just so brilliantly vague. What does that mean? What- it is all sport not yeah, winner take all <laughs> is is the upcoming us open not winner take all i mean i suppose not in prize money terms but in trophy terms yeah it's like they got to the last day before and they're like right we need to describe <laughs> this in a punchy way but we don't really know anything about it winner takes all sound all right yeah that'll be fine just, just go with that yeah highly highly bizarre but look i mean as I think is becoming clear, this could all be fine. It's just uncertainty. Mm. It's just, it's just that there are too many unanswered questions, certainly. And it, it could all be down to communication or it could be the fact that no one knows the answers. <laughs> but yeah, why were, the, why, why were some of these questions only coming up on Friday after the vote? Um, and it does still leave, in terms of the future, the, the great game of tennis admin chess, far from being over. In fact, this is a... a, a pretty decisive move from I mean the what are the ATP going to do now ATP slash Tennis Australia because they're in this together this World Team Cup um, competition proposal which I think is is I mean what the ITF have um, on their side is time isn't it because they're going to start in 2019 the ATP proposals scheduled to start in 2020 there may or may not be some sort of get out clause for the ATP in their deal with Tennis Australia we don't know even if there is they might not want to activate it but is tennis now going to tear itself apart yeah and it looks like a lot of the players um are favouring the ATP, especially because there there'll be ranking points there. That's that's another th- you know another complexity. I mean, you you cannot surely have those two tournaments. That just you know we can barely fit in one. To in quote Chris Kermode, it would be insane. Yeah, exactly, and that's what we're doing. I mean, <laughs> if anything sort of summed up the the dysfunctionality of tennis governance, this is it. And you know, do, do you have some players? just doing one, some doing the other. I mean, it looks, in a way, like the ATP one, from a calendar point of view, makes more sense coming at the start of the year rather than at the end. I don't know. I mean, Sasha Zverev said he he was like, are you joking? Of course I wouldn't play Davis Cup after the World Tour Finals. He said he'd be on a beach in the Maldives. But it also seems to be solving a problem that doesn't exist, the ATP one. I mean, I think the Hotman Cup's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, it technically doesn't matter, um, but I think it's given greater import because of where it falls in the calendar. Because, you know, for example, Federer, it's his mm. only pre-Australian Open warm-up event for the last couple of years. So the the matches carry greater significance um, on that front. For some players, it's their only opportunity to represent their country. Um, and certainly their only opp- opportunity to represent their country in a mixed way. So, I don't know, I think I think the Hopman Cup's great. Why not sort of invest more in the Hopman Cup and... and give that a bigger stage i don't know like it's it's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist also and i'm sure this has been asked i must have missed the answer but how does tennis australia square its staunch defense of the davis cup with the fact that it's in league with the atp to try and create this surely rival competition and invested in the labor cup yeah that's i mean exactly that seems so contradictory and hypocritical I mean just as we're saying it out loud even though i know these things saying it out loud really makes it sound 
as fully preposterous yeah. as it is. What a ludicrous situation we have in sport. And still, in all of this, what, 18 minutes, 15 seconds of conversation, nothing on the Fed Cup. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just completely lost um, in all these proposals. So, uh, I mean... <sighs> Yeah, <laughs> well, this is not going to be the end of it, is the bottom line. Not the end of it by a long, long chalk. I mean, all the players are going to be doing pre-tournament press for the US Open. I'm sure they'll all get bombarded with questions about this. And I don't know, some of the... Look, uh, uh, I love to hear passion from the players and I love that they feel strongly about it and they're putting me to shame and how strongly they feel about it. But on the other hand, I kind of think they are the ones with the with the power to make it work i will care about the new davis cup if the players in it care about it i care about sport where the people participating care the most that's why you love olympics and you end up watching greco-roman wrestling even though you don't care about greco-roman wrestling because the people you're watching want the thing that they, they want it more than anything else in in the world that's that's the thing that makes you want to watch so it's in there it's this very odd ironic situation for the players I'm not sure they're quite acknowledging the irony of that situation well that's the thing I find it a little bit disingenuous when you have players not all of them by any means but some of them bemoaning the the end of the Davis Cup but it's like but you've barely been playing in it if it were that important why didn't you play if you if you played in it there wouldn't really be this situation and I'm not blaming them for not playing you know a lot of them want to look out for number one it was the same thing with the olympics a lot of players didn't play the olympics because there's no money and there's no ranking points and hey if you're roger federer or andy murray you can afford not to worry too much about that but if you're a sort of jobbing player those are genuine concerns and i think as well that there is a slight issue with this we're getting a slightly um uh disproportionate representation of how the players feel because a lot of players who are in favour probably wouldn't want to put their head above the parapet and and say that Um, it's a lot more fashionable position almost to come out and say yeah I'm all about history and prestige than I am about money and ranking points and no one uses Twitter to say I feel sort of impassive and neutral about this that's just not you only express an opinion when you feel strongly about it so those that feel sort of shrug the shoulders like good for them for trying something we'll give it a go they're not necessarily speaking up Completely. And a lot of them will just be like, it's probably not worth the aggro of, you know, of looking like I'm supporting David Haggerty and Gerard Piquet. It's not a great look for me. So I'll just sort of stay silent. Just a final point on it. It's the, the, it, we, it, in this great game of poker or chess, you want to call it, between the, the various admin bodies, the what the ITF, as you've mentioned a couple of times, what the ATP have in their arsenal is ranking points. They can withhold ranking, they can determine which events hold ranking points. Davis Cup used to hold some, it doesn't anymore. Um, and Olympics used to hold some and it doesn't anymore. Whereas what the ITF have is, well, they've got the Grand Slams, obviously, um, and they've got the Olympics as well and at the moment qualification for the Olympics is tied to Davis Cup participation the inkling I get is that that's going to remain the same although the exact mechanism of it is obviously going to have to be adjusted but they could place greater weight you know if weight starts getting thrown around that's what they both have to to deploy yeah it is uh, the dilemma maybe it wouldn't be a dilemma the ICF have is that to put too strong an emphasis on Davis Cup points being linked to the Olympics is almost an admission that the Davis Cup in and of itself isn't enough of an incentive to play. You know, it almost seems like it's saying, well, 
we know you don't want to, but like, you know, here's an incentive. Yeah, so, we had those two, I think those couple of very bizarre, lacklustre Russian uh, Fed Cup ties where Maria Sharapova yeah. rocked up, obviously thinking, I. I want to play at the Olympics, so I'm going to have to go and do this thing that I don't want to do at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in theory, if this new shiny, brilliant Davis Cup is is all it's cracked up to be, then you you shouldn't necessarily need that incentive. But that's possibly naive. Um, Yeah, I mean, we will see whether those weapons get deployed. I would say if they do end up being deployed, then we're probably in a pretty dire tennis tearing itself apart situation, which is... I don't know. It's whether it's likely or not, but it's certainly not a preposterous prospect. So imagine like the football World Cup or something, an event like that, needing you know to be offering. You know, like the World Cup would mean you could play in the Champions League or something. That should be. It should be so much of a privilege in itself. Yeah, you've got to participate in the Carabao Cup <laughs> in order to be eligible for the World Cup. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, but we'll see. I mean. As we spoke about last week, there is clearly this amazing competition to be had, um, and it's just about the best way of doing it. And it doesn't feel like this is even close to the best way of doing it. And and this, this you know, we've heard uh, the last few days suggesting this is where you need a tennis commissioner or someone, someone who has the authority um, to be making these decisions, and you know that people can rally behind that because this is just so been so divisive. You'd have an electoral college system vote for the new tennis yeah. tennis commissioner. If you've learned anything in the last few years, it's definitely that electoral college system <laughs> votes don't necessarily produce uh, the best results. Um, so just on that electoral college, there was a, a piece, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, on comparing the electoral college system and its uh, discrepancies and potential unfairness to the tennis scoring system itself and how you can win more points, for instance, than your opponent and still lose the match. So there's, there are these people who think that the tennis scoring system, and, and let's not go down this route because oh, no. as if there's not enough uh, complication, but it's quite interesting that tennis, who in itself is based on this uh, slightly weird scoring system that we love, then uses the electoral college system in its administration. I'll leave, leave you to ponder that one for a moment. <laughs> Insert ad break here. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. 
being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Um, now, I'm loath to do this, Charlie, but we are going to move on from admin briefly to discuss actual forehands and backhands that have been hit in the past week, uh, predominantly in Cincinnati, although we will touch also on um, a lower level event that's been taking place in Vancouver, which has been quite fruitful from a British point of view. But first and foremost, um, to go in reverse chronological order, uh, Novak Djokovic has completed what some people are underwhelmingly <laughs> feel is underwhelmingly called the Golden Masters mm. um, by winning the title in Cincinnati. Uh, he's the first person ever to win all nine ATP Masters 1000 titles. They've obviously not always been called that, but whatever incarnation they've been in uh, since that system of the, the nine Masters was invented in 1990. Probably worth pointing out that Ivan Lendl did an equivalent thing, but there, the Paris Masters wasn't the Paris Masters at the time. But anyway, <laughs> on paper, Djokovic has done something um, by beating Roger Federer in the final 6-4, 6-4. And we'll come on to Federer, don't you worry. Uh, but he's done something that nobody else in tennis has done before, which I think is kind of significant for Djokovic, who's, who a lot of his sort of persona, I suppose, is defined by being brilliant and great but yet somehow still in the shadow of two people which is you know more indicative of the the state of tennis of the past 10 years than anything to do with Djokovic but getting to do things that those two haven't done I think is and I'm talking about Federer and Nadal in case you didn't notice uh, I think that's pretty big for Djokovic yeah Djokovic was called the third man in a brilliant New Yorker profile of him a few years ago which I think summed up quite nicely and yeah, it's a great achievement for him, and it, it's um, a deserved one, and reflects, I think, the fact that of all of those people, he's he's, you'd say, the most consistently good across all three surfaces. Probably, I mean, he just, you know, he's so good on all three. You know, he's no lower than like an eight point five or something. Even even on clay, where he's only won one French Open, he's been so consistent. And there was a period actually of a couple of years where even Nadal couldn't beat him on clay. I mean, he was basically unbeatable there. Um, so I think, yeah, as you say, it's nice that he's done something um, that the others haven't. And uh, it's long overdue because I think he got the he got the eighth in 2013. So he's been chasing this for a while and has had, what, this was his sixth Cincinnati final? Yeah, it's a lot of finals, isn't it? And I remember a couple of years ago him coming to Cincinnati and he definitely had this... Uh, after he'd won um, he'd won the title in Toronto and uh, he'd won the title in Toronto despite not playing that well and in hindsight we now see that as sort of the start of the the, the Djokovic decline although he's, yeah. he still reached the US Open final so um, it certainly wasn't a particularly dramatic start um, but yeah he rocked up in Cincinnati and I, I, he really wanted it you know this is as I say he might not admit how big a deal it is to achieve this big thing that those two haven't achieved because I don't think he is 
publicly at least as accepting of that kind of chip on the shoulder as as maybe we all are sure that it exists <laughs> yeah. um but yeah i think it's really really big and 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 it's fit, exactly as you say it's fitting for him because he is the most consistent across those surfaces it's a really fitting um achievement for him to hold and for the others not to although obviously the other two also hold career grand slams and are pretty good on all <laughs> surfaces are we now pretty certain that Djokovic is the favourite for the US Open or would you put him even Stevens with Nadal I wouldn't make him the clear favourite myself um, though it's really hard to make a case for anyone to be a clear favourite I mean there isn't a clear favourite is there yeah I mean Federer thinks it's Nadal Djokovic and then him third I'm not so sure about that I've got a sneaky feeling Federer will win the US Open have you he was I'm going to say awful yesterday. I thought he was, he was it was, he, he was ratty and yeah, I, something's going on. Something's going on. What, what, to tell me more about your theory. <laughs> well, it's, it's based on the probably very silly idea that he played so badly yesterday that he, I feel that would have been a big wake up call for him. I know that you can make the case that he hasn't been brilliant anywhere since the Australian Open. I do see that. I just I feel it's um, it's his time. I mean, it's a, I think it's a decade since he won the U.S. Open, which feels impossible to believe. Um, it's really really hard to win back to back Grand Slams, so no matter who you are, it's really really hard to do that. And so I don't think Djokovic will do it, partly for that reason. Um, I think Nadal is obviously playing amazing, but I. Th- my mind goes back to the Australian Open where he also looked really good and then he just his body let him down and I think that could happen that could happen again here it's been a long old season wouldn't rule that out and yeah I just think Federer um, the expectations might be slightly lower on him and I think he if, with, with you know he's basically playing in front of a home crowd as well um, and I think they could carry him over the line I see Certainly on the men's side, I see this US Open and potentially the Grand Slams after it, but this little period here, I see this as a what comes around every now and then in tennis. And I think the last time it came around was 2003, 2004, maybe maybe a bit of 2002 as well. Um, it's, a, it's a slack tide in tennis. It's slack water between eras. It, it doesn't fit into a big narrative. You know, the 2002 to four time was post-Sampras, pre-Federer dominance. Um, and you have... Look, I know I'm going to get I know I know I'm going to get slammed by fans of all of the players that I'm about to mention and but timing is everything in tennis and you know in other eras Juan Carlos Ferrero wouldn't have won a French Albert Open Costa. or yeah exactly he wouldn't have reached a US Open final Andy Roddick you could argue it both ways either he was incredibly unlucky to mostly coincide with the Federer era a guy that he had a, a, a just happened to have a really poor match up against um or you could say he was really lucky that he just snuck in there in yeah. time before Federer became Federer and won that one Grand Slam. Leighton Hewitt, you know, brilliant player, maximised his talent. But would he have been a world number one, a dominating world number one and multiple Grand Slam champion in other eras? No, he wouldn't have. Timing is everything in tennis. And I see as much as there are brilliant players around and I'm not taking any away for anything away from Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, but this has to be a relative slack tide. It has to be. You know, Djokovic is 
better as good if not better than anybody else but that wasn't Pete Djokovic yesterday in the final it didn't need to be because I think Federer's point he was very very good but relative to Djokovic of two and a half years ago nowhere near as good I don't think and Nadal the same on hard courts I mean realistically at 32 with the injury issues that Nadal's had he shouldn't still be winning US Opens at this stage you know this is a guy that you know, a few years ago, his knees couldn't really stand up to hard courts, let alone the, the second hard court swing at the end of a long season. And Federer didn't look that good yesterday either. I mean, the the young guys have to be looking at themselves and going, you know, and not saying, I want to have a big run. This is a big opportunity. They need to be saying, if I don't win this, this is that's not good enough. This is the opportunity right here. And hey, the slack tide might last through the Australian Open. French is a little bit different because Nadal has that so unique dominance. But it, it might last for a season or two, or it might just be this slam. But it's a golden opportunity. Well, I wrote a piece last year at the height of Fadal fawning, you know, by the media, basically saying, and maybe it was a bit harsh, but that their dominance shames the chasing pack. And I, I do think they had to give them, have a long look at themselves how was it that they were that these guys who are clearly you know superhuman but should they have been like splitting the four slams between them at that age like it it, it just seemed like a sort of a collective shocker on the part of of everyone else but what's really interesting as well about the this idea of whether it's a slack tide or that slight interregnum period we had in that sort of 0103 um, kind of time. This is only the second time ever that Djokovic, Federer and Nadal have split the first three slams between themselves. The only other time that happened was 2012. And in, on that, in that year, Nadal didn't play the US Open. So it's the first time ever that going into the US Open, you've got the big three all looking for their second of the year. So it's kind of the big three are more entrenched in a way than ever, which seems almost impossible to believe. And the last not just the last year, but the last 10 years, make it really hard to see anyone else really just grabbing the mantle and and pushing them aside. You know, they're still the top three favourites by a distance. I share your potentially illogical feeling that Novak Djokovic just somehow isn't going to win this US Open, win this US Open because I, I, I think sort of on paper he ought to be the favourite. As I said, I thought he was very good and improved through the week and and a very deserving winner in Cincinnati but not I don't think he was as good as he was at Wimbledon and he certainly wasn't as good as he was two and a half years ago during his absolute dominance I just don't see him winning back-to-back slams dominating again I don't I see him winning more slams I just don't for some reason I don't see him winning this one I think he's going to mentally hit a wall at some stage or I don't know I, I also can't quite see I don't know the turnaround necessary in in Federer to to win it seems seems really vast to me it was so he just had no feel at all I mean the most alarming thing for me in that final was his volleying which is Mm. the volleying is pure instinct that's when sort of everything else goes out the window and it's down to pure instinct and that's usually where Federer flourishes and shows his brilliance that was so off yesterday that was what made me go whoa there well like what's up with this guy it's like Superman on kryptonite yeah the volleying and the returning as well was like seriously alarming and that wasn't just the case against Djokovic I think it's Goffin as well you know he really struggled with that and you know he was making Djokovic serve really well 
But who's making Djokovic look like Ivo Karlovic or someone? You know, <laughs> he's barely, barely getting a return in the first set. It, it was bizarre. But um, so clearly everything's not right there. But these guys, you know, you, you mentioned um, that 2016 Rogers Cup that Djokovic won. And I remember watching that, and he was so subpar. I think he beat Monfils in the final, which kind of... was it Nishikori, he, he beat Monfils at some point. I think he beat Nishikori in the Did final. The whole th- he, he, he did beat Monfils in, sec- in the semi-final. Right. And, like, Monfils was beaten before he walked on yeah, the court. Exactly. It, it, like, he totally could have won that match, game levels-wise. It was all mental. Yeah, exactly. That was one that really stuck in my mind. And Djokovic at that time... He'd just come off that query Wimbledon defeat and he looked like a shell of a man and yet he was still winning a Masters event and you just thought, you just want to get in the minds of these players and shake them and be like, he is there for the taking. And um, but, but that's, they often don't and so that's why I still have confidence, even someone like Federer who right now, yeah, he's playing way below his best and you think that would, that should incentivize some of these guys to really back themselves against him. I just, I don't think they have that belief. I think they are so enthrall almost you know to to those three guys and you know the way those three players carry themselves everything about them I think they have a lot of bluff you know they look a lot they often will carry themselves in such a way that makes them look physically fitter and stronger than maybe they're actually feeling and this was something Leighton Hewitt spoke to me and David about that that's a big part of being a champion um, and that's why that's why I still would put those three and as the favourites in him at the top. Yeah, poor little David Goffin in his injured shoulder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's always going to struggle with the the strutting around like he owns the place, isn't he? Um, just quickly before we move on to talk about uh, the women's and an extraordinary win for for Kiki Burton's, uh, we probably should just um, mention Stanford Rinker. And I will also mention the fact that you correctly predicted uh, the Andy Murray oh, yeah. loss to <laughs> Luca Pui, who I perhaps have to retract some of my comments about. But it, well, um, yeah, Stanford Rinker steps in the right direction win over Nishikori it's a big one taking yourself Federer on paper a big one although that was a it was a very entertaining match it was high risk high reward lots of winners lots of unforced errors but regardless it was big for Vavrinka yeah he um, he looked probably the best we've seen him since he came back um, and that was yeah you're right about Federer that match was slightly strange I mean it was their second match each of the day wasn't it so it, it did have a slight exhibition feel yeah I think I mean Vavrinka his, his US Open win in 2016 must be one of the most sort of forgotten about major wins like when Djokovic came back uh, to the, uh, the Wimbledon final this year almost everyone when instantly it was like this is his first Grand Slam final since he won the French Open two years ago and it was like Hold on. What about that like forgotten US Open final against Favrinka? Like it's it's kind of funny that Stan's won the US Open. I think those his first two major wins were so memorable somehow, especially that French Open one. But you know, he is a former champion and only two years ago it feels like a lifetime. Yeah. Oh gosh, it does. And that was a great final as yeah, well. It was really brilliant. It was a it was a it was a great tournament. He played that uh I think it was a quarter final or semi final, wasn't it, against Kei Nishikori yeah. in like the most extraordinarily sweaty conditions I have ever experienced. I will remember the <laughs> uh, the 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 sweat and humidity for as long as I live. So don't worry, it, that 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 fortnight lives long in someone's memory charlie and i guess the uh, the roundabout point i'm trying to make by dwelling on that is that maybe we underestimate him on, on a surf you know on that um that's that slick hardcore you know he, he he's proven he does have the pedigree and uh unseeded you know who's going to want to play him first round 
Crikey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andy Murray is going to be unseeded as well. Do you read anything into the fact that he didn't take a wild card into Winston-Salem? It was talked about maybe he would if he wanted more matches ahead of the US Open. Are we just looking for stories where they're not? Well, I think trying to second guess Andy Murray <laughs> over the last year has been proven to be such a mugs game, hasn't it? You know, he, he'll he look like he's going to do one thing and then do the complete opposite. So... <laughs> I think we're just going to have to wait and see. But, you know, we've seen, you know, he pulled out of the previous four majors uh, late doors. So <laughs> I think everyone is sort of penning their Andy Murray pieces this week and just, you know, nervously keeping an eye on uh, on what he's going to do because it could be completely outdated very quickly. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see if he it does have half an eye on withdrawing, whether he does it before or after the draw, because, of course, he came in for a lot of criticism last year. Scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you about that US Open draw? Nine. Oh, I uh, <laughs> wish I'd never asked. Um, unfortunately, due to my really poor time management, we don't have nearly as much time um, as we really ought to to talk about uh, Kiki Burns because we've got a couple of bits of any other business as well. Serena's been talking to the press um, this week. Oh, we, should we mention Kyrgios? I mean, peak Kyrgios this week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nothing new, is it? It's just more Kyrgios being really kyrgios For anyone that doesn't know, he well, he played two matches in a day, didn't he? He beat Borna Cioric despite self-confessedly tanking for a portion of that match. He said, he shouted to his box, you're going to see the, the worst tank you've ever seen for the next few games, and so it proved. Um, which probably a tough pill to swallow for Borna Cioric being beaten <laughs> by a guy that's tanking. I think that is uh, quite a burn. And then uh, he ended up losing in three sets in his second match of the day to Juan Martín del Potro. And there was definitely some tanking happening there as well. And yeah, it's not new, is it? But it's also not great. And also in his first round match, turn up on the court without his tennis shoes. He just came Oh, on. yeah, that as well. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a curious bingo, um, you know, racking up a lot of points. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's reasonably fun, but it's getting a bit old now, I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I, for want of, you know, I can't, I can't reach for anything that I haven't said about these behaviours from Kyrgios before. To 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 quote my brother, who's a really massive Kyrgios fan, will always tune in for his matches. He said that was as disappointed as his he felt as a Kyrgios fan watching one of his matches in terms of he really invested in that Del Potro match and there were flashes of everything he could do and it was kind of pure talent that got him back into the match in, in the second set rather than grit and then just to to capitulate and collapse and just yeah, for all the the forgiveness that we afford him because we kind of get this insight into his mental frailties it's you know you are how the sum of how you behave aren't you and he behaves really badly and I still think all of it is a symptom of him not wanting to leave it all out there because if you keep something in reserve it's kind of a um, body armor if you if you leave it all out there and you still lose that's really exposing yourself isn't it and I think it's fear and not wanting to let on to himself or the world that he cares as much as he probably does deep down and uh, yeah that is my uh, Freudian psychoanalysis corner for the day well that was always my read on game on feet I always thought it was a real misunderstanding around him I've always thought that that showmanship was a complete mask for actually a real fear on the court you know it's he would, you know, just sort of dolly returns back at key moments and then be sort of doing tweeners. And to me, that just always looked like someone who was really frightened of actually 
sort of playing proper tennis at, at the big moments. Kyrgios, I, I am a, I remain a really big fan of his because I think he is really interesting and he's different. Um, I just hope it, look, it, it's up to him. That's the thing. You know, he doesn't owe us anything. You know, he can it's his talent. He can do what he wants with it. I think it would just be we we would just love to see what would happen because he is so gifted and so talented. You know, what would happen if he applied himself? Yeah, my brother suggested he needs to have a um, uh, he needs to be visited by the ghost of tennis pros past. <laughs> To to have his uh, and and then we had some discussion about who that might be. I proposed Xavier Elise. Yeah, well, I think Monfils definitely. Yeah. You know, someone who had all the talent. You know, when the year Murray won his junior U.S. Open in 2004, Monfils won all the three other junior slams. You know, he he was the guy who was going to be winning the majors. But I mean, almost anyone will have regrets about you know the time they didn't apply themselves. And... Do they though? I don't know. Well, like I look at somebody like Tim Hemman, There is a guy with no regrets, none at all. Like there is a guy that, for all that we all impose this narrative on him, is this guy that just couldn't quite do it, didn't quite deliver. He knows that he can sleep soundly at night, getting, knowing that he absolutely delivered on everything he had to give. I mean, I'm I'm sure there are examples of the opposite, but. Yeah, yeah did. that is true, actually. And Leighton Hewitt is another one who, like, what more could he have possibly left out there? Um, but I think the vast majority of players will have, might have had the odd moment where, could they have done more? Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there'll be the odd exception. Yeah, and it's just not, I don't know, he gets away with a lot because he's cool, isn't he? It's not going to look cool when he's 30. Mm. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? He's already, what is he now? Twenty four. Yeah, he's, he's already getting a bit less cool. I mean, not that I'm the arbiter of of cool, but anyway, um, yet more poor time management, and we've eaten more into the time when we should have been discussing Kiki Burton's uh, Kiki. You can take it up with Nick Kyrgios. Um She saved a match point in the final to beat Simona Halep two six seven six six two. Simona Halep, incidentally, who this time exactly a week ago we were discussing whether she would even take to the court in Cincinnati, let alone give it her all and reach reach the final. Uh, first ever victory for Burton's over a world number one, first hard court title of her career. It's time, Charlie, for us to stop talking, certainly for me to stop talking about Kiki Burton's as a clay court specialist, because especially taking into account Wimbledon, she is an all court specialist. An amazing few months, amazing year. And she's at, you know, her run, I was thinking her run this week was Sitsipas S, you know, was it four top 10 wins? Um, you know, she, so confident. Um, I was so impressed yesterday the way she never really took a backward step, even in the first set where, you know, errors were kind of flinging off her rackets and she lost at 6-2 and could have been quite despondent. She just kept going after Halep. And even when she lost a break, she was a break up in the second set, got reeled in and still was going for it. Uh, so positive. And now she's got to be in the conversation for the US Open. She's super cool, isn't she? There's something just really cool, relatable about her. I know she's spoken about her sort of falling out of love with the game and considering giving up, suffering a bit with with depression. And yeah, that adds a sort of extra tinge of joy to the whole thing just to see somebody not only winning, but, you know, not doing it in a machine-like way. You're doing it in this really joyful way. kind of a way and yeah I mean she's 8-0 against top 10 players this summer that is utterly extraordinary and I think yeah on that human side I think anyone who watched her beat Venus Williams at Wimbledon and saw the kind of agonising you know match point after match point and I think it was hard not to be like oh my god 
please for her sake can she win this match because I don't know what she would do if she didn't it just it looked so painful she was giving absolutely everything to do it and also even like there's a vulnerability there how pale she is and I thought yesterday in that heat in that sun bearing hours oh my god she's gonna be so burnt <laughs> like how is she even playing so she needed to do the cricket um yeah, yeah, sun exactly. cream thing make herself look um completely ridiculous there was an interesting on-court um coaching exchange between Darren Cahill and Samana Halep which is definitely a sentence that I've said before um in the third set she said no more positivity I had a chance but now it's too much now that ordinarily is the sort of thing that Cahill just turns his back on that you know that is uh, Halep of old you know pre his walking away and saying sort yourself out mentally and then I'll come back to the team but in light of the fact of how much tennis she'd played was she just saying look I need a break now I've got the matches I need I have nothing left to give yeah I thought that actually it wasn't it obviously never looks great losing a match where you've had a championship point but I and obviously Halep has a history of mental frailty but I think this was a physical thing she looked absolutely gassed after that second set like I thought and and even to the point where I thought oh maybe that explains why she she tightened up in that second set tie break and and it was almost as if she knew that if she didn't win that that was it and and you know she lost it and then really the third set was a non-event she just looked exhausted yeah so no, nothing really to read in still the favorite for the US Open I think she is yeah I, I I would still if I had to pick one player it would be her um like I say I think I think that can be written off as more a physical thing than a mental thing and I think she's there's just been so many good things about Halep over the last few months that shouldn't dwell on on yesterday too much who are your sort of second third and fourth favorites some names to throw at you uh, on the basis of what we've seen in the last week Arena Sabalenka uh, Madison Keys Caroline Garcia Petra Kvitova well I mean Kvitova we all were tipping for Wimbledon as well she was the one I think that jumped out on that draw everyone thought it was her time It'll be the one where we don't tip well, her and <laughs> she wins. Well, this, this is basically my like prediction <laughs> method. It's who, who, because I'm normally wrong. It's like, well, who, who instinctively would I think? Don't do them and do someone else. I mean, Sloane Stevens, if you're putting aside prediction neuroses, you would think is actually, you know, has the credentials, obviously. The defending champion should uh, certainly be in the mix. Um, Garbini Muguruza in the mix. She's had an awful hardcore season, but can turn it on at any time yeah by that logic she she's my favorite because she <laughs> she's the last person that we should be uh should be tipping didn't no. she lose love and one to barbora stritzover at eastbourne before winning wimbledon last yeah. year yeah exactly i mean that that summarizes that you know the as we've said before the stan vavrinka equivalent um can have no form and then just come out and absolutely blow her opponents away so she, yeah, I mean, she could be Sabalenka. I, I, oh, she's. But yeah. I love watching Sabalenka. She, she's brilliant and has had so many giant killings. But I don't know. It, it, like we spoke about, you know, being worked out, not necessarily in that sense, but just that no one's going to be underestimating her if they play her, are they? I mean, she, she's had so many big wins. Um, brilliant at Eastbourne as well. You know, had great run there. So. I, I wouldn't expect her to certainly not I wouldn't say semis or finals for her. are Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez the doubles men's doubles favourites for the US Open because they this is an extraordinary fact they won their first ever ATP Masters 1000s uh, title 
yesterday. They've won two Grand Slams together. Jamie, obviously, well, they both won uh, mixed slams as well. But their first ever Masters 1000, really emotional. It's been an up and down year. This, the real standout high without question. I think it's their second title, but by far the biggest. The, the other one this year was in Acapulco. And um, yeah, it's really big for them. Yeah, I find men's doubles especially so strange and hard to predict. I think because not to be sitting on the fence again but I think that third set um, champions tie break means you get so many upsets and Jamie Murray even said like he's really against that format he you know he said that after a proper three setter or a best of five setter you come off and if you've lost you can say you know the best team won by and large with with that you know it's one set all and then you're in a tie break and so you I think that partly explains why they haven't won a Masters title because Week on week, there are so many results that you look at and you're like, oh, that's, that's weird. But um, it's a great achievement for them. And obviously, I think it's two years now since they last won a major. It was that 2016 US Open, um, which is quite a long time. You know, they, it looked at that point that they were really going to dominate. Hasn't quite happened for them now, uh, since then. And other pairings might have ditched one another. You know, there is a lot of turnaround in doubles pairings. And, and I know sort of personality-wise and all of that, it's always been a happy camp regardless of results. But even so, a lot of other partnerships wouldn't have lasted through those ups and downs. And they have, and that is to their great credit. No, definitely. I, I thought, I sort of worried that because the results weren't quite as good as they'd been straight away, that maybe they would think, well, by the law of averages, maybe we should just change it up and see what happens. Because obviously they're both individually right at the top. But no, it's been good that they've stuck together and they're a really nice pairing. Bruno Suarez is great. You know, he's he's such a fun, warm personality. Um, and I think their personalities complement each other quite well in that way. Yeah, they're quite different, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, Bruno loves a bit of salsa dancing. A <laughs> um, bit of other business to mop up, which I will do very quickly due to my aforementioned poor time management on this podcast. Uh, Dan Evans won um, his first title in his comeback. He won the Vancouver Challenger. Uh, it was a deciding set tiebreak against Jason Kubler. He is back in the world's top 250, as is James Ward, um, who's who had a long time out of the game for for very different reasons, really injury blighted. Um, he r- had a run to the final in the Jinan Challenger. Any idea where Jinan is? I've put you on the spot there, Charlie. I'm going to confess that I don't either, so it's fine. N- neither of us know where Jinan is. I'm sure people will let us know on Twitter. Um, at the WTA event in New Haven, uh, Simona Halep is in the draw. Yeah. I suspect that will be news that is soon out of date. Surely. I mean, you're saying like, we, you know, last week we were saying she's been out of Cincinnati. I mean, surely she's not going to play on that. Just a quick word as well on, on James Ward. Isn't just to kind of bring this full circle. He obviously is defined by that Davis Cup win. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess he's probably, uh, he, he'd be someone who'd say, um, you know, we'll lose something from that. But then we could still have, I guess that's the point, We he, his match was in that first round against the States, wasn't it? So we will still have those equivalents, potentially. Yeah, phone up James Ward. Let's find out what he thinks. Is he on Twitter? <laughs> James Ward on Twitter. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, okay. I'm very well connected. Boom. The name has dropped. Um, Yeah. Others in the draw in New Haven. Garcia, Conta, Burtons, Kvitova, Gerges. I wonder how many of those will drop out. I would expect Conta to stay put because she could potentially do with a few more matches. Kyle Edmonds in the draw in Winston-Salem. He should be looking to win that. I think he was a semi-finalist last year and he went in with very little form. And uh, yeah, he's never won a title before. I'd say that's a big opening for him to to win his first title. It'd be very good timing as well. 
And just finally, Serena Williams has been talking to the press again this week. She did a big interview with Time magazine. She's on the cover. A couple of notable things. I mean, it's a great interview go ahead and read the whole thing but a couple of notable things to come out of it one um she explained uh, a large part of the reason behind that thudding uh, defeat to to joe conta in um san jose which was that she discovered um that the man that uh, shot and killed her sister back in 2003 um had been released from prison on probation she said she found that out minutes before taking to the court which you know all due respect to conta she played a great match but it was clear there was something up with Serena that day, so that explains a lot. And the other thing, notable thing to come out of it, was uh, her saying, talking about, uh, obviously she talks in, in great detail uh, about the process of coming back from pregnancy and, and the complications with her birth and the the breastfeeding, the fact that she was still breastfeeding at the French Open in Wimbledon and that Patrick Moritoglu, her coach, told her to stop and uh, she's been pretty outspoken about that. She said, yeah, that was really hard to take coming from a guy. And uh, yeah, th- those two have a relationship that fascinates me. There's this sort of weird codependency um, going on. He has his broadcasting career. It's it's always uh, been a peculiarity to me how open she allows him to be. Presumably if, you know, what she says goes, if if she says, Patrick, shut up. I don't want you talking to the press and telling them secrets about me. Um, he has to fall in line. She's paying his bills at the end of the day, although I think he's getting his bills paid elsewhere as well. Um, yeah, but I've, yeah, but equally, she can say whatever she wants about him in the press and, you know, everything will blo- presumably just resume as normal with those two. I mean, I work with Patrick at Eurosport and um, I, ca- I can't comment on his um, policies on breastfeeding, etc. I like the guy. He's not a feminist. <laughs> I think I'll just leave it at that. I, I, yeah, I probably wouldn't put him in my top-ranking feminist list. Shall I leave it at that? He's not an Andy Murray-style <laughs> modern man. But you, and you mentioned that, but she did effectively put a gag on him at Wimbledon, Serena on Patrick. He, he wasn't allowed to talk to the press, remember? Did he manage to abide well, by that? I think he did. I think he... I mean, obviously, it was, like, it was killing him. <laughs> But, but I think he did until possibly once. I don't know what the agreement was. Maybe it was that it was until she played her last match. Because I seem to remember on that Saturday evening, obviously the, of the final, him being surrounded by a scrum of people. So maybe as like the second that ban had expired, he was an impromptu Patrick yeah. press conference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are his favourite, yeah. I think. Yeah, the ones where people just gather around, like you know. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be seeing those at the U.S. Open. Um, Yes, well, I've snuck it in under an, under the hour mark, Charlie, which I didn't manage to do last week. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you um, for accommodating the podcast at <laughs> Telegraph Tower. Still no sightings of Boris Johnson, so I'll have to keep coming back. Um, and yeah, you're not going to be in New York. No, I won't. I'll be uh, be watching it from afar in the in the early hours of the morning. What better offer have you had than than being at the US <laughs> Open? What could possibly be better? I am going to be away. Uh, for some of the first week um, but yeah, then I'll be tuning in on Amazon Prime it, 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 do you know what Charlie even though you're away you can still tune in on true. Amazon Prime because you can watch it on the go 
That is the beauty of it being available on all devices. It's almost like I've set you up for that, but (laughs) (laughs) I I promise I haven't. It's all natural. This has not been pre-discussed. But yes, you can watch the US Open on the go. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be back later in the year on the podcast. Thank you very much for filling the literally very big shoes of David Law, who we think will be flying to New York, but uh, very little has been heard from him since uh, I think he's got a tan of some sorts. Uh, yeah, so David Law coming to you on our US Open preview podcast, which will be available um, next weekend. It's all coming around very, very quickly. You will be able to watch that US Open exclusively on Prime Video UK all of the live tennis. There'll be a match of the day available on demand as well. There'll be a highlight show um, that you will be able to, I think from quarterfinals onwards, you'll be able to watch all um, matches on demand after they've been played as well, men's and women's side. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. It starts in a week's time. They are our partners, Amazon Prime Video UK, as are The Telegraph, as are La Manga Club, as are, I promise you this is the last on the list, our three executive producers, Triple S, Melanie Bowes and TennisBalls.com. And of course, Charlie, one extra. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 